Meredith Monk is a composer. She's also a choreographer, she's a singer, she's a dancer, and a filmmaker. These are all true statements, but they also seem weirdly misleading. The way Meredith constructs pieces, all of these things are so deeply linked. It feels simply like you're watching some type of ritual activity from a parallel universe. When you attend a friend's wedding, when the organ plays and everyone stands and turns to watch the bride as she walks down the aisle, these are ritualized motions, things that we do that don't really seem like choreography or acting. And that's kind of the closest analog I can find for the work that Meredith creates. When you see a monk piece, generally a vocally focused, wordless work with integrated movement, you don't feel like you're watching performers, but rather congregants, parishioners, maybe protesters. Meredith somehow constructs brand new worlds complete with syntax, history, and a broad emotional palette. So I bring this up honestly as a sort of disclaimer. It's pretty hard to grasp Meredith's work through audio alone, which is to say, on the radio. So we're going to learn how to perform it, or at least a small part of it. I'm going to teach you one of the parts of Panda Chant Number no. 2. This is a piece she wrote as part of a larger work from 1984. Now, I mean... I can't see you, obviously, so I won't know if you're doing the movement, but, you know, consider indulging me and clear out a shoulder-width piece of floor for this activity. Let's learn the physical movement first. This dance step is probably the simplest you can do. Picture some 1980s teen rom-com about the misfit boy who's coached on how to dance by his platonic best female friend so that he doesn't make a fool of himself at the impending plot-driving school dance. This is that dance step. Step to the right, bring your feet together. Step to the left, bring your feet together. Right, together, left, together. Right, together, left, together. Got it? Now, the vocal part, that's also simple. You go... Panda, panda, panda. Now, right together, left together. Right together, left together. Today, we're diving deep into the mind of artist Meredith Monk. This is Meet the Composer. From New York Public Radio's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. Meredith Monk is exceptionally hard to pigeonhole. She's a composer, a choreographer, a singer, a dancer, a filmmaker. She's won a MacArthur Fellowship, honorary doctorates. Her music has been performed all over the world and even used in a Coen Brothers movie, The Big Lebowski. Does the female fall make you uncomfortable, Mr. Lebowski? <laughs> uh, is that what this is? Quite. <laughs> Meredith is simply a legend of New York City's downtown art scene. And what's kind of nuts is that she still lives that life. In a Manhattan choked with multi-million dollar condos and former art space yogurt shops, Meredith still lives in a sprawling, rent-controlled Tribeca loft where she, her vocal ensemble, and her turtles have been working since the 1970s. Meredith is living romance, an uncompromising artist who's been making bizarre, gorgeous, important work with a unique and cohesive perspective for decades. This is Meredith's 50th season, and while critics and audiences have always scrambled to quantify her work, from the very beginning... 
She seemed to know exactly who she was. I grew up in Queens. I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in Queens. Then when I was seven years old, we moved to Stamford, Connecticut, which was the country. It, was, it really was the sticks in those days. But my early days, my mother was a singer on radio, and my grandfather was a bass baritone who had come over from Russia. <laughs> He had a, quite a career here in New York at BAM and at Carnegie Hall. He concertized, but also sang not only in temple, but also in church. So it didn't matter to him. I mean, he was an anarchist. That's probably why he left Russia. So my mother's whole background was music, music, music. And so she also sang very well. So she never went to college. She was on CBS at the age of 16. Wow. And that's a funny story if you want to hear the story. Because it's to. really funny. One day, a friend of hers was going to what they called a music plugger. I guess it, I guess they worked at sheet music stores, and they would play songs so that you would want to buy the sheet music. Oh wow! So it's called I you know literally a music plugger. I hurry to my and then sometimes they would they kind of coach people that would come in, you know, and through songs. So her friend wanted to be coached by this guy. He's smoking a cigar, you know, the usual thing, like, okay, girly, sing something. And she could not sing at all. And so and so he was, like, real irritated and everything. And then my mother said, could I try? And so my mother sang, and he just flipped out. Who are you, and where do you come from? And I'm taking you over to CBS. So she auditioned at CBS, and they took her. So she wow. had a contract when she was 16, so she never went to college. Can we find her oh, yes. recordings? Oh, yeah. My mom gave me a nickel to buy a pickle. I didn't buy a pickle. I bought some chewing gum. Chew, gum. How I love chewing gum. I'm crazy over chewing gum. I She had a lot of different voices. She had a very wide range. But she was doing a lot of jingles at that time, and they were live. So she would commute from Forest Hills on the E train into Manhattan and be on CBS or ABC or NBC singing these commercials. So that was my early childhood. So you say she had a lot of different voices. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that mean? Well, she had this low crooning voice, which they used a lot in the 1940s. We're glad to welcome back the charming Audrey Marsh with a hit song, I'm Stepping Out with a Memory, tonight. I'm stepping out. I remember there were the series of recordings that she did for RCA Victor of shows like Annie Get Your Gun and Guys and Dolls. And, you know, she would do the Annie Get Your Gun as a kind of character. You know, I, you know, she, she wasn't afraid to go into a character voice. I'll dine at the old cafe where we had so much fun. But then my early training in music, which I've always been so grateful for, was in Dalcro's Eurythmics, and I started that when I was three. I call out a number. You make a great effort. This is the most important part of the exercise, and fortunately it's invisible. But what you do in your mind is much more important. Simply getting control of the beat and feeling fully part of it while you're moving. And then when I call out the number, you just take that abstract, intellectual hieroglyphic and turn it into something real and living which is an image of yourself moving that much faster now walk to the right a step for each swing can you explain a little bit about what Dalko's Eurythmics is he was a Swiss composer in the late 19th century and he was teaching at a music conservatory and he realized that his students had a hard time learning rhythm but this one particular student was having the hardest time and he observed the way he walked. He saw that he had a lot of flow to his physical being. And he realized, I can teach rhythm through this person's body. So he started teaching this method, and it was a three-pronged method. I remember doing a lot of things with rhythm sticks, catching balls in rhythm and skipping in rhythm. And then another branch was solfege, the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do scale system. But I remember doing it with our arms. Our arms were down, and then by the top part of the scale, our arms were up. So you got that sense of the way that sound works in space, One. low and high. So from from the age 
three, physical movement and music were indelibly tied together for you. Most of the other kids in the class were learning music through their bodies, but because of my musical background, I was learning my body through my comfort with music. For Meredith, music and movement have always been braided together. It's funny, we talk about synesthesia, which is when two or more senses are kind of mixed up, and we marvel at the people who associate key centers with color and things like that. But we never really bat an eyelash at the maybe obvious fact that music can really strongly connote movement. And when you think about it, that's a pretty complex system. That's aural, tactile, and visual information all wrapped up in one package. I started studying piano when I was also about three years old. Last minute. And I, you know, I never was a great pianist because I never practiced. I was, you know, I hated the technical part of it. I just would read through everything. I was so lazy, you know, as as a piano student. And my mother would say, my mother used to practice six hours a day. When Meredith was 13, her family picked up and moved to Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where everything was different. New house, new friends, new school, and new teachers. We had to take an elective, and chorus was one of them, but I couldn't because my father insisted that I take typing, which I hated. I actually hated it so much. But during a free period, I heard the chorus, and so I snuck in, and I started re- reading through everything. And then Mr. Rivera said, who are you? And I you know, told him my name, and then he just let me be in the chorus. One thing he did I'll never forget where he said, we're going to be singing the Fare Requiem. It's going to be with the teachers and the students, and you're going to love it. And I was like, ooh, I don't want to sing with my French teacher. (laughs) But, oh, it was just incredible. He said, all these doors are going to open for you. We all have these moments in our lives, things from childhood or adolescence that just stayed with us. I sang Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms in high school, and there's something about performing amazing music with so many other people, the transformation of many voices into one force that makes choral singing so transcendent, so unforgettable. It's just really, really cool. But anyway, so the piano was, you know, my my early instrument. But then when I was about 13, and I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I started getting really, really interested in folk music, and I wanted to learn guitar. So what kind of artists were you interested in? Harry Belfonte, Burl Ives, you know, Pete Seeger actually came to our school in high school and just blew me away. You know, I had never heard a 12-string guitar before. I mean, he was, he was extraordinary. All over this the folk thing was starting to come in into the culture, but, I mean, it was something that was very personal to me, particularly the ballads, because I was probably so miserable that it was like an indicate, you know, it was kind of a reflection of my inner state. Sad British ballads about dying. <laughs> yeah. Why were you so miserable, just because you were 13? or I think so, yeah. <laughs> I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world of woe So I learned guitar and started singing folk music. And then I even helped myself through school singing at children's birthday parties with the guitar. In that fair land to which I go So Meredith went to Sarah Lawrence, which was a pretty key step for her. This was a place that let her develop all facets of her artistry. She was registered both in the music department and in the dance department, working pretty experimentally in both disciplines. Movement was very difficult for me. I I, I was born to sing, but I was not born to, to dance. But there was something about the dancing that I think was my health. You know, in a way, I don't know what would have happened to me, you know, if I hadn't had the movement in my background, because I don't think I was a natural. So because I, I had technical limitations as a dancer, I had to find my own idiosyncratic way of moving and choreography. So I was doing very sophisticated choreography at a very young age, and I was given a lot of support for that. You know, I think the thing with young people, and I try very hard when I'm teaching to also remember this, is 
If you're seen, that's actually all you need. <laughs> and that's very hard to get. <laughs> and they really saw who I was. You know, they really saw that I, ha I really needed to sing. I really needed the music. And I also wanted the movement. So, you know, they really were very, very influential to me. When you graduated school, yeah. I mean, there is this sort of moment in everyone's life where you've been going through some kind of organized thing, yeah. and then it's gone. Yeah. What happened at that sort of great moment of freedom? Well, I was very driven at that as a young person. You know, I wanted to do my work, period. You know, that was it. I would say, especially my senior year at Sarah Lawrence, I was making fairly sophisticated pieces that involved uh, gesture and some voice and objects and, you know, very interdisciplinary or kind of holistic sort of forms. I didn't know what they were, but I but I was glimpsing the possibility of weaving these elements together into something. So that transition, you know, I would say that was one of the easiest transitions in my life because I had already set up my whole thing at Sarah Lawrence. I'd come into New York and I was already renting a studio, you know, to work. And I just got on the train after I graduated and I was in New York, period. That was it. <laughs> At the time Meredith got here, New York was a world different from what we have now. That's composer Phil Klein, whom you might recognize as a host on Q2 Music. He's also our sort of resident guy who was around then. The look of the place, the real estate, it was so wide open. It was very quiet downtown. For the most part, it was just forgotten. In the 60s and 70s, the Lower East Side was like one-third occupied. In a way, it was it was very free. It was easy to move around. You know, there'd been like the, the folk music scene in Greenwich Village, but it wasn't really, you know, what was happening artistically was all sort of quiet and local. Actually, Meredith was there at a really great time because a lot of things were just about to happen. You know, the concepts for things like minimalism and performance art were there. They were starting to exist, but they weren't really gelling yet. And uh, she was there at the time that, well, to help it gel, to help invent it. But uh, that was stuff that was just in the air at the moment, you know, coming through people like, you know, John Cage or, for that matter, Andy Warhol in the factory. These ideas were there. I mean, Lamont Young was just beginning to do his thing. It, it was almost as if that part of New York was like a small town back then in a way. I was welcomed very much into New York, and I say this, uh, you know, with so much gratitude, by the generation that was ahead of me, which were, were the Fluxus people. So the Fluxus movement was a deeply fascinating and kind of bonkers movement of music and art from the very beginning of the 1960s that kind of got its genesis as a result of these classes composer John Cage was teaching at the New School. You might know the kind of Cliff's Notes fact about John Cage, that he wrote a piece in 1952 called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which calls for exactly that amount of silence. Cage's work, though, went way beyond 433, and he spent a couple decades constructing music from all sorts of unlikely sources. Mr. Cage's secret is that he's going to play one of his musical compositions tonight. He is probably the most controversial figure in the musical world today, and when you hear his performance, if you'll forgive me, you will understand why. Uh, the instruments that he will use include a water pitcher, an iron pipe, a goose call, a bathtub, five radios all hooked up. And, uh, what is the latest status? Are they hooked? Are they working or not? Uh, I'll explain this later. They're not. And a grand piano. Now, Mr. Cage, I know that you teach a course in experimental sound at the new school. Experimental music. Experimental music. Yes. Uh, will you tell us quite seriously whether or not you consider what we're about to hear music? 
No tongue-in-cheek, well, but seriously. No, perfectly seriously. I consider music the uh, production of sounds. And since in the piece which you will hear I produce sounds, I would call it music. So John Cage taught all these classes at the new school, which were so, in a way, revolutionary, they inspired an entire movement. Calling their work Fluxus, these composers pushed at the boundaries of music and performance. If you've got a second, I highly recommend looking up Fluxus online. Almost all of these scores are available, and they're pretty easy to find. But just to give you an example, I'm going to read a few of them right now. <clears throat> Performer buys an ice cream cone, and then A eats it, or B gives it to a stranger, or C waits until it melts completely, then eats the cone, or D, on finishing the piece, buys another ice cream cone. Ice cream piece, 1966, by Albert M. Fine. Do not prepare for the performance and even try to forget that in a short time you will be performing. When the time of the performance comes, simply do something appropriate. Music for my son, date unknown, Jed Curtis. Spontaneously catch hold of a hoist hook and be raised up at least three stories. Danger music, 1961, Dick Higgins. Dick Higgins was a person that was very important to me. I, I performed in some of their happenings and events. That was, in a way, the tail end of that movement, the happenings movement. It was I got that for about the first year. I remember meeting Yoko Ono at that time, but she was quite a bit older than I was, and her work was more... She wasn't, at that time, doing vocal work at all. It was much more visual and very conceptual kind of work. In entertaining your guests, bring out your laundry of the day and explain to them about each item, how and when it became dirty... And why? Laundry piece, 1963, Yoko Ono. They also saw who I was. And when I would do those happenings, I could use movement, I could use my voice, I could use image. I mean, it was I had a big range as a performer. So I was lucky because they just took me under their wing in terms of offering me a lot of opportunities to perform and that kind of freedom. And in, in a certain way, they were more anything is possible than, I think, generations that came after them. And yet it was quite a different sensibility than mine because I think mine was much more mystical, always more mysterious. And they were m much more cutting through what had happened in the 50s. Most of them were students of John Cage at the New School and those very famous classes that he gave. And I think they were getting back to something, you know, you could do a whole piece just drinking a glass of water and that would, if it's done with total concentration, that's art. Whereas I think what was going on in the 50s was very arty, and, you know, very mental. Mm. When you say your your work was always more mystical, I think you sort of described what that isn't, but what, what is that? <sighs> well, I don't know. It's hard for me to explain. I think it was just, I was much more into magic and in a sense, a kind of theatricality. And I think I was much more interested in myth and what you didn't see mm -hmm. as I was in what you did see. of any of these guys that came before her, she forged her own totally idiosyncratic way forward. When we come back, we'll see how she transformed the ideas of process and of community to create an art form that is totally unique, that just could not be made by someone else. That's after the break on Meet the Composer.
At Q2 Music, we believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music, can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Tune in, won't you? Find us online at q2music.org. Welcome back to Meet the Composer. I'm Nadia Sirota. So, by now you may be getting the sense that Meredith is kind of different from a lot of composers. First of all, she's always knitting music and dance together. They're completely inseparable in her pieces. And honestly, this element of her work, it's pretty hard to convey on the radio. So we've posted a few videos online, which I encourage you to check out. That's at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Also, though... She rarely makes traditional scores. A great many of her works live primarily in the heads of their performers, most often Meredith's own vocal ensemble. So how do these pieces live on? What is Meredith Monk's legacy? One way Meredith has found to extend her practice is to conduct vocal workshops every year, and they're all open to the public. But here's the thing. While she calls them vocal workshops, they seem to be a whole lot more than that. We were curious as to what actually goes on in these things, so we sent our producer, Alex Overington, to go check one out. When I pulled up to Meredith Monk's house, I was standing outside her building and kind of hesitating for a second because, like, I I didn't... I wasn't really sure what I was about to get myself into. And I was kind of nervous, so I'm just on the street... Looking around, it's a bunch of trendy cafes all over the place. And you open the door, and it just sort of slams behind you, and you're in this big, empty, cavernous kind of stairwell with these huge stairs. And as you climb up, you realize that you're sort of, like, going back in time. These, like, old loft spaces. I didn't... I I had no idea they were still down there, but they haven't been renovated they're like untouched Hmm. it's like this museum I finally get to the fifth floor and I've got my hand on the door and as soon as I get in all that weird anxiety just sort of disappears because you're face to face with this turtle wait did you just say turtle yeah like turtle the animal like a like a turtle in a glass you know like a (laughs) Like a real turtle, like a turtle turtle. Factual turtle, okay. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay. And I, I follow my ear and I go towards like the sound of like these vocal scales, these warm-ups. And I get into the kitchen and there's just like a bathtub. And it's like full of chipped like teacups. And someone's in the kitchen, like, chopping up carrots and tomatoes to, like, feed to Neutron, the turtle. And I get into, like, the main, the main room, which is huge. It's, I think it's her, it's, it's her bedroom. There's, like, this huge room, and the only thing in there is a bed with a bunch of clothes all over it. And then this baby grand piano, which is covered in cassette tapes and notebooks. <laughs> and that's it. That's Katie Geisinger. She's a vocalist and performer in Meredith's Ensemble, and she was leading the workshop that day. So Katie told me that I wasn't allowed to just, like, stand in the corner and record the rehearsal. Oh, really? Yeah. I had to participate, like, as, like, a moving singing person. I, I am not a mover or a singer. So I was pretty terrified. Um, 
I I I couldn't I yeah that wasn't that was a, a I was put in a that was a weird zone for me <laughs> for sure. So Katie had us all line up in a row, maybe fifteen of us, and she started by singing this one pitch using the text Sheng Wei. It was this kind of musical game of the telephone. <laughs> you hear these sustained pitches, but the notes keep changing. So these harmonies emerge from the texture, and a whole piece forms out of this very simple process. Having the music kind of like flow through me or something it's so different from just listening to Meredith's CDs I don't think you can fully understand Meredith Monk unless you're in a room with her you're in the space just listening to a CD is like you're only getting one tiny glimpse into how deep the work can go and I came out just I have to I came out kind of converted what Alex is talking about, this is really true, and it's really congruous with my experience of Meredith's music. The first time I heard it, it was on some clinical recording of some piece or another, and I thought it was pretty. But the second I saw Meredith perform these pieces, I saw her embody these phrases and use her physical body to illustrate things. She lives her music so richly. It's an entirely different experience. So as you might imagine, the process Meredith uses to write her music... It's also a little bit different. First of all, I like to lay tracks myself vocally. And so the way I work is I work on a four-track tape recorder, like cassette tape recorder. It's hard for me with the digital thing is that, you know, the first thing they say, is it going to be in 4-4? Is it going to be in, you know, it's sort of made for someone who knows I'm going to make a rock and roll song. That's it. And it's too slow for me. By the time I figure that out, my material's gone. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I'm so intuitive that it has to be something I press the button, that's it, bang. You know, because otherwise I forget. Sometimes I do notate it, like if I'm working at the piano, so I have like lots and lots and lots of notebooks. And that's where you have like all these themes that come up in the material and maybe not worked completely out, but you know, and sometimes I go back to those and and recycle some of those. Nowadays, I mean The forms are quite complex, so I actually need someone to enter them into, you know, a score program because I I can't do that. I used to write the forms out by hand. At music school, you're taught to pick scores apart, analyze every little dot or expression marking, and I'm not going to lie, I love this process. It's obsessive and esoteric and right up my alley. Meredith Monk doesn't write scores. I mean, not really. Sometimes she makes maps, sometimes she notates musical cells, but for the most part, the music exists as sound, stored in memory and expressed in rehearsals or concerts. I find the process of working from memory kind of radically different from the process of working with a score. The music sort of seeps into your subconscious in this crazy way, and performances feel completely transformed when you're not reading notes. I wanted to see how other musicians felt about performing from memory, and as it just so happens, my older brother, who incidentally, like me, is also a viola player, is working on a massive memory project with his group, the Chiara Quartet. Ultimately, when we get so 
comfortable with a piece to where we're not thinking about or worrying about what comes next. It almost feels like we're just living inside the, the shapes themselves. It really feels like taking what is an analytical process to begin with, that of understanding the composer's intention, and so internalizing it that it becomes no longer analytical at all, but rather almost experiential. It's a much more right brain kind of experiencing the sensations, the feelings, and the shapes of the music as opposed to trying to understand. And in order to do that, we have to do a lot of that understanding work as a part of the memorization process. What I like about performing from memory is that there really feels like there's less barrier between me and my colleagues, but especially between me and the audience. Performing with a group of people, because it's so collaborative to begin with, the audience can really feel and see and sense vectors of energy communication going back and forth between the players. And in a very real sense, the audience is also contributing to that energy. I find it very satisfying to do that work. The work of performing where it's just us on stage and just the music without any kind of other objects in the way. For me, it's so much easier to just embody the music, you know, and it becomes part of your bones. And that it takes time. You know, you could say memorization, but the way that I like to work with my group is that what you said before is that it's so hands-on that you... You know, you don't start with paper, actually. You know, what I used to do with my group is we didn't have any scores, and then I wrote the score after I'd finished the piece as a mnemonic device, but not necessarily in the process of, of making it. So you're making it basically all in your head and retaining it all in your head. Head and body. Head and body. Right. Yeah. A visceral kind of way of thinking about music. Well, the first piece I did with the full vocal ensemble was American Archaeology, which was a site-specific performance out on Roosevelt Island. I think it was 1994. I'm Thea Blackman, vocalist and composer. We went out to someplace upstate for, I think, two weeks, maybe. And we rehearsed every day for, I don't know how many hours, in a barn. And it was really fun. We all lived together. It was sort of like a little commune of people creating a piece. I was the newbie in the house, so everybody else had worked on Atlas before. And Meredith comes into the rehearsal. No, no, no. Good morning, everybody. So here's a piece. That was the piece. <laughs> I was like, That's about two bars long depending on how you notate it. And everybody was working with this little snippet, and we all got to working with this little snippet of, of Meredith's piece. And we created a whole, you know, five-minute epic out of that by improvising, by creating movement to it. Meredith created more vocal sections to it. She shaped everything, of course, but... It's really a collaboration, sort of like um, a choreographer would work, you know, on everybody's body or on everybody's voice. And then Meredith would say, why don't you try this or try this part there? Switch over here. We're going to do this as a canon. We're going to invert it and all that kind of stuff. So that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience from uh, the performer's point of view because you you don't get a faxed score beforehand that's all laid out, but Meredith is really working with each individual person at that time. What I like to do is I generate my material, a whole lot of material. So it would be, in a way, it would be comparable to coming in to a painting studio with all your, I guess, your paints mixed, but it's a little bit more, you know, really phrases of material of material. Sometimes I come in with my whole structures made, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I actually like to just come in 
with, you know, you could say uh, fragments of material or, you know, even uh, whole sections or sketches, you know, co come in with sketches. And then I like to work right with the people and try this and try that so I can also see what my variations are and the way I like it voiced and everything. And then from there, I, I really, I, I sculpt it or I make it. Like in the rehearsal, I make my forms. And then after that, usually I'll spend a lot of time alone and, and evaluating, you know, whether that, that's the right form or whether I really need to work with it some more and then go into the studio with the other people and work on it. So, you know, it's a very give and take and very, it's very hands-on. Chair, you're supposed to be playing an, an E flat or a D right this This is a D. Yeah, you are. You're, you're singing an E flat right Yeah, so it seems like communication is a really important part of your process. Um, but I also feel like you reframe it in the context of some of your pieces. Like, for example, your your Hockett pieces. Mm. Yeah, so take like the Hockett from Facing North. Well, a Hockett form, for the listeners, is a form that you make a melody uh, where each person gets one or two notes to make one melody. Yeah, so if it was just ping pong, he, 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 that would be easy. That would be very monotonous, actually. But here it is. So all the ums were Meredith and all the ha's were me. And basically what happens is that each of us is in charge of two notes and that's how it makes the melody and little by little it works its way into each one of us is in charge of one note so wide in range and it passes by so quickly that still to this day it's it's one of the scarier things to perform so we're throwing these notes really quickly through the air because so many things can go wrong you have one tiny little iota of a doubt and you're gone if you have a thought in your mind that's it you're out. And so one part is nothing without the other. And it's very complex. If you sing it by yourself, it sounds bizarre and it's, it's nothing. In a way, it's like a, a moving meditation. But with the other person, it comes to life. Like musical chairs, but sped up. Throughout the piece, it gets more and more complex. Talk about communication. Meredith takes over some of my notes. We're looking in each other's eyes, and if one person happens to go off... I take over some of Meredith's notes. You have to make an ESP decision. Are we just going on? It's a really interdependent piece. Or do we go back to what we missed? Oh, it's like tightrope. I mean, I've done it about, I don't know, thousands of times, and I don't think there's ever a time that I've ever done it with anybody that fear is not within our gaze. It's just a, an incredible experience. I love the description you just gave of having a thought, but the thought is so much quicker than we could possibly talk about it. Exactly. When, when it's a verbalized thought, it's too slow. Right. The body is actually faster than the mind. <laughs> My experience of doing the Hakkad is that the body actually knows what to do. Mm -hmm. It's not that your mind is not working. Your mind is working, but it's not thought. It's, you know, what they call in Buddhism, you know, non-discursive thinking. Hmm which means you're not going blah, blah, blah. You're actually where you are. <laughs> Maybe a better way of saying it is the synchronization of body and mind is faster than the discursive mind. Cool. That's very yeah, cool. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an experience. The majority of Meredith's massive output is made up of vocal music, and most of it is wordless. While Meredith has hundreds of colors and sounds in her arsenal, very rarely are any of those sounds recognizable text. Words are very pointy. You know, they point to something, and they're very effective. Because I came from the movement background, I trusted nonverbal communication. And I had always had a hard time with opera because I just never wanted to follow the libretto and I didn't really care. You know, I just wanted to hear the music and the sound. And so I, I think there was just something in me that was very 
distrustful of narrative, you know, that I felt that the music was saying everything that needed to be said, that the language of the voice did not need the language on top of it, that that was two languages. It reached to feelings and energies for which we don't have words, to a much deeper place, much more direct, and that it could, it could delineate between feelings and between emotions by not using text. I never use words as narrative. I, I admire it very, very much, but I just, I just find I'm much more comfortable using the voice as a language itself, and I try to find the sound, the sonic language that is going to be right for the sound world that I'm, you know, trying to create. Hmm. And then sometimes the pieces are. Sometimes I think there are some pieces that are halfway in between words and no words. <laughs> Like, do you be that piece that I was talking about? I am saying do, but I'm going do, 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 you, 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 you would never know that it's do you be, but that's basically what I am saying over and over again, do you be. extended techniques or does it I think they are but I mean when I was doing it I was very lonely and nobody was working that way and I would never have thought of making a name like that uh-huh. <laughs> you know I never even thought of it I just was that this was my language that I was developing for the human voice does it resonate at all with the language that you developed for your body as a dancer as a choreographer mm, I think it's I got a, I have a much wider range you know technically emotionally than I have it as a mover mm-hmm I think I relied a lot on my wit as a mover. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't try so so hard to get the full range. Uh, I think with a voice, it just is in there. You know, it's kind of the, the whole fabric, you know, is part of it. The, the spectrum of feeling, you know, mm-hmm. I try to say I'm really going for a rich palette mm-hmm. of feeling in, in a concert. just used my voice to I explored with my voice you know so I went as I said I went in the, I go in the studio and I just explore with my voice and just dig down and what is what's in there and then I think that I remember the first concert that I did of in 1970 at the Whitney with which was a full concert of music so that was the first time that it was just a music concert and I remember somebody coming back and saying have you ever heard Balkan music because you're doing this glottal break and I said, no, I haven't. And so, oh, listen to none such explorer, so and so and so. And I did, and you know, it was great. But really, the way that I get to it is much more like digging down into the, you know, into the depth of my body and my voice and my soul. And then I come up with these um, sound worlds that, you know, that can seem to exist in the world. A vocal family or something like that but or, or it can remind you of something but that's not how I got to it mm. Do you want to hear more of this piece? Do you be? Or anything else from today's program? Go to our website q2music.org slash meet the composer After the break Meredith talks about impermanence personal evolution and not becoming a cartoon of yourself. Stay tuned. Q2 Music brings you into the minds of today's favorite new music artists. We also bring you into their physical space, their homes and their workshops, through our video series, Q2 Spaces. (laughs) 
get to know the longtime Tribeca loft of today's featured composer, Meredith Monk. Learn about her Buddhist shrines, her workspace, and, of course, meet her turtle, Neutron. To watch the video, go to q2music.org spaces. So I'm a little bit afraid of heights, not like cripplingly afraid, but I'm definitely that person at a friend's brownstone rooftop party or whatever, whose palms begin to sweat when somebody else walks close to the edge. Back in 2008, I found myself at the very top flight of an eight-story spiral staircase inside this massive hollow concrete tower, and I was being asked to lean over the edge of an 80-foot-deep, 10-foot-in-diameter chasm to lean out as far as I could while playing harmonics on the viola. I was working on a piece of Meredith Monk's called Songs of Ascension, and it was designed to be performed in a giant, beautiful sculpture by the artist Anne Hamilton called The Tower. The Tower sits on the Oliver Ranch, which is in Sonoma, California, and it's this eight-story concrete tube flecked with little cut-out portals in various rectangular shapes. The top of the tower is open to the sky, and in the bottom there's a pool of water. Curling up the interior are two staircases in a double helix that never connect. Meredith Monk designed Songs of Ascension to be performed entirely on one of these staircases, the performers traversing up and down this crazy, cavernous, reverberant space, with the audience occupying the other staircase, such that each member of the audience experiences the work from a slightly, sometimes drastically different vantage point. So, back to my clammy palms. To be honest, I really wasn't used to playing and moving in space at the same time, at least not in a choreographed way. Performing the weird, half-automatic calculations involved in playing the viola to the best of my ability is rarely coupled with thinking about where my feet are supposed to go. Add to this a very narrow, concrete staircase, an 80-foot chasm, and a costume, which was like this totally crazy olive drab cargo dress with combat boots. But I, I really have to qualify all this. While I was nervous and vaguely aware of my own mortality, by the time I found myself in that tower, I had made peace with all of this. Meredith's process is painstaking. The piece ends up existing in this almost lizard brain space where the movements come virtually automatically. I kept thinking of myself not as a performer in a play or as a dancer, but as an acolyte in a ritual, some kind of altar boy, someone who processes with candles or incense. So how does Meredith construct these pieces? How was she able to create work that feels so deep, so kind of ancient and important? This is work with no words and no plot, and yet it seems to convey so much. She really was open to experimentation. That's vocalist Katie Geisinger. So she was willing to let us sort of let it rip for a while. Uh, and she was, in, in, in most rehearsals with her, she's not always exactly sure what it is she wants, but she knows what she doesn't want. So it's more like we're this big rough thing and she's hewing it down to the exact thing. I think of Meredith as a sculptor. Again, that's Theo Blackman. I think she carves away, sometimes very slowly, sometimes very quickly, actually, um, what she doesn't want. So in the uh, sort of improvisations, you could just do what really came to mind and really be in the moment. And sometimes it was, that's great, and sometimes it was like, no way. I think sometimes she knows exactly what she wants, and she brings it into the rehearsal, and sometimes it's a full piece. And sometimes it's a little snippet. And she carves away and she realizes what doesn't work. I think that's a very legitimate way of working. Mm -hmm. 
just carve away and carve away and carve away and try this out. And by the end, you're left with something that actually works. This process of Meredith's, of workshopping snippets of ideas on human subjects, this isn't the model of composition that, I don't know, that Mozart used or something like that. This is firmly rooted in communion, in community and interaction. This is using other musicians as a big workshopping brain and editing as you go. In Songs of Ascension, one piece that kind of fell out of Meredith fully formed was called Vow. When we were working on it, she actually called it Mika's Melody. Mika was Meredith's partner for many, many years, and a little while ago, she died of cancer. Her death was devastating and left a massive mark on both Meredith and her work. That's maybe why this piece, which comes across as so intimate, came tumbling out of Meredith whole. Um, I lost my partner in 2002, actually today. Oh, so wow. that's 12 years ago. And I must say that I don't know if I could have made it through without having Dharma in my life. Meredith has been a practicing Buddhist for a long time now. It's a huge part of her life, and while I'm hesitant to make some grand proclamation about how this affects her music, there's definitely something there. I think people get mixed up with Buddhism that it seems, you know, how could you ever get that high or, you know, how could you ever be as pure as that? But that's not what it is. I think the thing about Buddhism that's so amazing is that it's, it's accepting the moment for what it is and its rawness, ugliness, pain, pleasure, joy, discomfort, you know, it's all that is part of it and it's totally acceptable and totally workable. Have you pulled this idea or these what what of this have you pulled into your art? I feel like in a crazy way that I knew this as an artist. I just did not know this as a person at all. So I feel like it's become more whole. I think maybe before I practiced, it was like Meredith over here was one thing and Meredith artist was another thing. And mm -hmm. they were very, very different. And mm -hmm. now I feel like it's more woven. It's kind of a perspective that death is actually very much part of, you know, it's just impermanence is part of our existence. It's always going to be overwhelming, but it doesn't take you by surprise because you're sort of working with that all the time, mm -hmm. this idea of impermanence. You're working with it all constantly. I think another thing that happens is that as we go on in life, especially as we get older, we tend to close off and harden up. And then you start becoming a kind of cartoon version of yourself, hmm. you know, because we just get into our habits and we get very solid about who we think we are. We don't really have an ongoing identity. You know, the Dalai Lama would say we don't even exist, really. You know, that this idea of ourselves is just an idea. Mm -hmm. But if you actually soften and become more vulnerable, that that's a way of also staying younger and staying more alive and staying more fluid. And so that's been very helpful for me. Moments of discovery I have keep me going in a kind of hard life, you know, in some ways. Just trying to keep going financially and all that is a big struggle, but it's a wonderful struggle. I feel so blessed. So it's those moments that you do feel that you are a medium for something else or some kind of insight that you know is coming from a larger sense of existence.
something that you just touched upon, which I think resonates with a lot of people, is trying to be an artist in a world where all of these things require a certain amount of capital, like mm-hmm. actual money. Yeah. I mean, maybe do you mind sharing a little bit of how that worked in your life as you were <sighs> coming up through music? Well, pretty hard. <laughs> I remember when I, I, I was living in, on Great Jones Street in my loft, and I was so poor that I used people used to have to take me to dinner and my father would take me out to breakfast and I'd just grab all the rolls and the you know and the sugars and everything you know and put them in my purse cuz you know if I had five rolls that was five breakfasts so you know it I I really know what that struggling is and it's and it still is very very difficult like to keep it together um you know it just takes a lot of energy with a lot of struggling and a lot of storm und drang you know, we are still going. <laughs> so, you know, that's all I can say. But it's not easy and it's never been easy. Right. Right. But I, I, you know, and I might be completely naive, but I believe that if you're really doing something that's of benefit and that you're really following what you believe to be true, you know, in your work, that it will work itself out somehow. is the very last movement of that piece I played with Meredith back in 2008, Songs of Ascension. Picture again that concrete cylindrical tower with its two intermingling spiral staircases. During this piece, the whole cast, which was six instrumentalists, six solo singers, and a couple dozen chorus members, descended from their positions on the staircase out this tiny window at the bottom of the tower and across a large field observed through tiny cutouts by the remaining audience, who watched them fade from view. constructed well over 50 stage works and dozens of vocal works, not to mention several films and a full-length opera. And honestly, if we had two more hours of this show, we'd still only be scratching the surface of her incredible body of work. Nowadays, she's working more and more with notation and instrumental music. And I think this is because not only are her forms becoming more and more complex, she's aware of her own impermanence. I love what Meredith said about her legacy, that the best she could hope for was that the joy of playing and singing this music would be passed down, that you can be a musician and a singer and synchronize body and mind. What interests me is each piece doing something that I don't know. It would never keep me going. I would have quit a long time ago if I felt that I had to make my same product over and over. Mm-hmm. It almost seems for you that composition is... Um, it's spiritual practice. It's pra- I was going to say yeah. it's practice. Yeah. It's a devotion. Definitely. It is. That's interesting. I, I don't want to sound corny, but it is.
Meet the Composer is a production of Q2 Music, part of New York's classical 105.9 FM WQXR. Enjoy new music 24-7 and discover the best by today's composers by listening to our stream at q2music.org. A very special thanks to this episode's patron producer, David Weller. Hi, this is Michael Overington calling from Frenchtown, New Jersey. Links to all music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington. Additional support was provided by Carol Ann Chung, Hennis Brown, and Noah Kim. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to our guests Kate Geisinger, Theo Blackman, and Jonas Sirota. And to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Kickstarter donors, including Nathan Hamer, Stanton Champion, Margaret Hunt, Andrew Conkling, Fred Child, and Limor Tomer. Okay, dude, I'm soaked. Hand in. Good luck with this one. <laughs>